I'm Ben Philpot. And I'm Jay Root. And this is The Ticket. We demand our liberty. But this election is not just about what laws we're going to pass. Americans have come back from some pretty tough economic times. We need to stop limiting kids in poor neighborhoods. I declare to you today as a candidate for president of the United States. Those are just a few of the voices you'll be hearing over the next year and a half as at least one Democrat and dozens of Republicans campaign to become the next president of the United States. Welcome to The Ticket, a weekly review of the 2016 presidential election from KUT News and the Texas Tribune. Since this is our first podcast, we want to spend a little time explaining what the heck we're really trying to do here. Here's the general outline. Uh, Each week, we'll kick off with a few comments on the big moments of the week from the campaign trail, and then we'll have an interview with someone who makes a living working on, covering, or commenting on presidential campaigns. We're also going to reboot a Texas Tribune favorite, Stump Interrupted. You may have seen the original video version that was kind of a cross between VH1's pop-up video and a fact-checking service. In this version, we'll take a few key moments from a candidate's speech and take a deeper dive on why the candidate said what they said, and then we'll analyze what they're actually saying. And then we'll end each show with something. Uh, We actually don't have a name for it yet. Basically, Jay and I will bring things that interest us from the national coverage uh, and let you know what we think. Today, we'll call it Straight Ticket. Now, we'll probably call it something else next week, and so on and so on, until we find something we like, or until you give us a better idea. So here's where you come in. You can call us at 512-943-2016. You like that, 2016? Uh, Or our email, theticket2016 at gmail.com. But for now, on with the show. Texas Senator Ted Cruz announced his bid for the GOP nomination for president in front of thousands of students at Liberty University in Virginia. As he was the first major candidate to announce, he'll be the first one put under the stump-interrupted microscope. And the first part of his speech that we'll dissect, Cruz's push for liberty and new jobs. Today, millions of young people are scared, worried about the future, worried what the future will hold. Imagine millions of young people coming together and standing together saying, we will stand for liberty. Think just how different the world would be. Imagine, instead of economic stagnation, booming economic growth. Instead of small businesses going out of business in record numbers, imagine small businesses growing and prospering. Imagine young people coming out of school with four, five, six job offers. And the college kids are fairly excited about the idea of having a job right after college. Uh, Jay, this is one of the clips that you uh, wanted to bring to the stump today. Uh, What uh, did you want to talk about? Well, I thought it was really interesting, the applause on that versus when he talks about straight up liberty and, you know, liberty meaning get the government off your back and all that. And I know that he wants to conflate those two, but um, you have to wonder whether or not talking about economic growth is going to get them as excited 
uh, unless they're, he's talking to students about having job offers, which they obviously are very excited about. But I think what where he really is strong and where his supporters are is when he's beating up on the establishment, beating up on crony capitalism, beating up on Barack Obama, and this feeling that the American way of life is sort of slipping away. And I'm not sure, uh, you know, he always is talking about Reagan and that this was Reagan's message, but Reagan had a sunny personality, and I'm not sure that's a an adjective. Sunny is not an adjective I think I would, uh, you know, put on to Ted Cruz. So can he turn this sort of message of economic empowerment and, and make it jibe with his whole liberty uh, argument? I'm not sure he can do that. Do you think he needs... The job argument, especially when talking to the young people, because of, and and we'll get into this here in just a little bit, some of his maybe problems with bridging the gap to younger voters? Well, you know, I think this this idea of economic empowerment or the the fact that, that people want jobs and people want a better economy than we have now is a powerful thing. Um, and oh, I, I could see that sort of taking off, but that's really not what Cruz is all about. And that, that is one of the problems he has, I think, with, in terms of young people is that, you know, for example, I'm sure we'll talk about this later, but the, the you know, whether it's gay marriage, uh, or some of these other issues, uh, traditional issues, you know, I, you have to wonder whether or not he's going to be able to, to keep the young people coalition together that he's trying to build. All right, so now let's listen to uh, my first clip, uh, and it's going to focus on Ted Cruz's faith story. When I was three, my father decided to leave my mother and me. We were living in Calgary at the time. He got on a plane, and he flew back to Texas. And he decided he didn't want to be married anymore, and he didn't want to be a father to his three-year-old son. And yet when he was in Houston, a friend, a colleague from the oil and gas business invited him to a Bible study, invited him to Clay Road Baptist Church. And there my father gave his life to Jesus Christ. Now, an easy applause line at Liberty University. Uh, For those of you uh, unfamiliar, it's, uh, uh, they say, the largest Christian university uh, in the world. Um, It's got a campus of, what, about 20,000 or so in Lynchburg, Virginia. But then through online courses, they, what, sometimes claim 60, 70, 100,000 students. So an easy applause line, but why have a faith story in a speech like this? I think that that was something that I kind of realized was a thing uh, during the 2012 campaign, following the different candidates there. You had uh, former Governor Rick Perry not only having the big uh, event, the revival, you know, gigantic tent revival type event called the uh, the response. The response. That's you know, a, thank we, we you. We called it Prayer Palooza. That's right. In at, in the Houston uh, at the uh, uh, Reliance Stadium. Reliance Stadium there in Houston. Uh, but it's, it's you know he had that. Perry had that. But then Perry went to Liberty himself and gave right. a faith statement. And if you remember, Mitt Romney went to the Bush School at Texas A and M. Uh, to essentially deliver what, you know, kind of on the margins, people were calling the speech where he says that he's he's a Christian, even though he is has always considered himself a Christian, but he's Mormon, which was a an issue possibly within some of the more evangelical communities within the Republican Party. 
Um, so, you know, this is a statement. This is kind of like being a Democrat in Texas and getting on a plane and going to, uh, Mar- <clears throat> excuse me, Marfa and shooting at doves, you know, to prove that you're not going to take away guns. This is kind of the street cred moment uh, within the Republican primary. And so Ted Cruz, who, you know, is not he's not faking any. I'm not saying that these candidates are faking any of this, but Ted Cruz is there giving his his personal story, his witness, and saying, you know, that's why when you hear me on the campaign trail talking about faith and talking about how it informs my ideology, uh, you know that I'm authentic. It's so overt now, as we saw in 2012 with the prayer palooza. Um, it's not enough to just say, um, I was saved by Jesus Christ. You have to go to Liberty University and talk about the transformative love of Jesus Christ and talk about how it's at the center of your family and all of that. I do think, though, you know, Ted Cruz's family story is a little complicated. His father has been criticized for saying some politically incorrect things. Yes. <laughs> so he could he could be a liability out there. Uh, and the, just if you haven't heard, he, he said some things like send the president back to Kenya and other correct other less uh, uh, correct. mainstream ideas. <laughs> well, and, you know, his his father, they're also divorced. I mean, obviously, divorce is not a big campaign issue anymore. But if you're going to talk about how and he went into great detail about how his father left his mother and then he came back. Well, but he left again. They're divorced now. So. I, I think with, uh, you know, we see with Marco Rubio, Marco Rubio has a very compelling story, and he speaks so eloquently. He, he just captivated the 2012 Republican National Convention with the story of his father being a bartender, and he talked about the bartenders that were working that night, and that was really, really powerful. So it's a pretty stiff competition out there to talk about family history. All right, so uh, you've, your next clip here, Jay, that you wanted to pull, also focuses on how faith has defined Cruz. Instead of a federal government that works to undermine our values, imagine a federal government that works to defend the sanctity of human life. And to uphold the sacrament of marriage. And so there you have the uh, faith red meat thrown out in, at Liberty University. But, but what's your take on it? Well, you know, look, I did not expect him to deliver anything other than an unapologetic defense of traditional marriage, which you're also getting from Mike Huckabee and some others. Um, but... You know, he really wants to occupy this lane of uh, getting the evangelicals and keeping the Tea Party together and really having the far right sewn up. And that is his path to victory. Um, and I, I, you know, I think in, in a uh, in, in a primary, it's probably, you know, he's, there's going to be other people that are going to say that. Um, but um, I, I think it's a little bit of a wash, honestly, in a primary. I think in a general election, it, you know, the ship has sailed on this issue in many ways, particularly yeah. with young voters. And I just don't see how, I mean, I, you know, I think the, the civil unions that, that Rand Paul talked about was, was seen as a way to get young people. I think that's sort of, you know, so 2008. But Ted <laughs> Cruz is sort of more in 1958 on this one. 
when I was following uh, Senator Cruz while he the first week out of the gate after he announced his his presidential bid, you know, I talked to a bunch of college students in New Hampshire and Iowa and actually from other parts of the country uh, that were at a convention in New Hampshire, uh, and you know, all of them essentially said the same thing: love his message of liberty, love the fact that he does you know stands on principle, love his loves his uh, constitutional message, uh, thinks that he is not going to reach out to young voters with the the gay marriage stuff. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how he, you know, we don't expect that he'll change. So it'll be interesting to see how he weaves that message moving forward if there's a perception that, you know, that's like one of the make or break things. I think he does get credit, as you said, for being sort of unambiguous and, and highly principled and sticking up for things even when it's not popular or even when it causes him some blowback inside the Senate. So the final part of Stump Interrupted, uh, we're going to play two more cuts. Now, one is an example of why Jay and I say that uh, Ted Cruz will win the GOP nomination. The other is an example of why he won't win the GOP nomination. So uh, here's the clip. Here's why he'll win. Instead of a government that works to undermine our Second Amendment rights, that seeks to ban our ammunition... Imagine a federal government that protects the right to keep and bear arms of all law-abiding Americans. Instead of a government that seizes your emails and your cell phones, imagine a federal government that protected the privacy rights of every American. And that, Jay, goes back to kind of the first clip that you brought us, the idea of this is where Ted Cruz is at his best when he's talking about those liberty issues and the idea that America is becoming too restrictive or is trying to, you know, take over different parts of your life. Mm -hmm. I mean, really, probably like no other candidate, Ted Cruz appeals to people by using this apocalyptic rhetoric. You know, it's and the more conspiratorial, the better. Um, the people who believe that America is under attack, that our way, our very way of life is being threatened by moral decay and government overreach, the people in the tinfoil hat, <laughs> <laughs> those guys are really, really excited about Ted Cruz. He's their guy. And he gets them really riled up. He did it in 2012 here in Texas very effectively. Um, this idea that the establishment, including the Republican establishment, right. and in fact, even more the Republican establishment than anything else, um, is, you know, they're ganging up and siding with Obama secretly. Um, that idea is very, very strong. And Ted Cruz is like Mr. Government Shutdown guy. They love him for that. Yeah, he you know his big uh, laugh lines in New Hampshire and Iowa his first week out on the campaign talked about the idea of uh, Republicans doing you know just as poor a job as Democrats and he would make some joke about that and the crowd you know ate it up uh, and that's you know kind of what you get with this as well. Here's our final clip of the day. Uh, it's one that the two of us think that uh, you know you might look back on ten months from now and kind of say yeah. Yeah, that's that's why he was never going to win in the first place. Uh, but here, here's this example from the dawn of this country at every stage. America has enjoyed God's providential blessing over and over again. When we faced impossible odds, the American people rose to the challenge. 
you know, compared to that, repealing Obamacare and abolishing the IRS ain't all that tough. The power of the American people when we rise up and stand for liberty knows no bounds. If you're ready to join a grassroots army across this nation, I'm going to ask you to break a rule here today and to take out your cell phones and to text the word Constitution to the number 33733. Now, we're not saying he's going to lose because he's asking people to text him. Uh, that's actually a pretty smart campaign idea, one that we've seen over the last you know four to six years. Uh, but, Jay, that's uh, it's talking about liberty again, but it's using it as... You know, his idea of the grassroots army that's going to overcome, what, Republican machinery or uh, giant mega donors? I mean, what, what do you— Well, do you remember the last time we were going to have a grassroots army? It was going to end Obamacare and repeal every word, every syllable of every word of Obamacare. And when we would ask Senator Cruz, well, you know, okay, I get you, I hear you, but what if the grassroots army doesn't show up? and doesn't convince Mitch McConnell and everyone else in Washington to just fold over and, and, and you get to have your way. And he said, well, you know, I'm not going to go there. We're going to do this. This is going to happen. But that's one of the problems here is, is that, and I think in some ways, you know, your strengths and weaknesses often come from the same place. So the strength is that people who um, are attracted to this seemingly lost cause, but that victory is just around the corner, love him. But on the other hand, you run the risk that really your campaign is a lost cause before you even got started because it's the difficulty of beating the establishment. It almost never happens. Um, it, it, it did happen in Texas, and I think that by, rate, by winning that Senate seat in 2012, by beating the establishment against all odds, at one point he was at, you know, at, he always jokes that he was within the margin oh, yeah. of error. He could have been at minus 2%, but he, he came from behind, he won, and that— that that has sort of entered his psychology, I think. This is very, very difficult to do. What he's trying to do is to, to beat the establishment. It, it, it's very, very rare. Well, obviously, we'll figure out over the next uh, few months uh, whether or not he's able to do it. Yeah, well, otherwise, that was the relaunch of Stump Interrupted, and we'll be doing the uh, candidate announcement speeches in order. So next week, we'll dive into what Rand Paul said at his kickoff event. You're listening to The Ticket from KUT News and the Texas Tribune. Steve Munisteri knows Texas Republicans probably better than anyone in the state or even the nation. Just a few weeks ago, he stepped down from his run as chairman of the Republican Party of Texas. His time in office will probably be remembered for his efforts to expand the tent of the GOP with outreach to minority groups and non-traditional Republican voters, like the state's Hispanic population. But now he's got a new job, trying to elect Rand Paul president. Steve, I was struck when you left the uh, chairmanship of the Republican Party of Texas to go work for Rand Paul and what you said about it. And, and, and you explained why you went to work for him and why he represented the kind of candidate you wanted to be associated with. Explain what you said and what you meant by that. 
Well, when I was on the Republican National Committee, I brought charts to demonstrate that as a party, uh, we basically had a shrinking electorate if we kept going just at at the communities that we've been campaigning in, and that we have an ever-changing society that is very, very diverse. And our party was, was, quite frankly, falling down on the job and reaching non-traditional Republican communities, young people, Asian Americans, African Americans, Hispanic Americans, etc. cetera. Uh, and Rand Paul, is, as far as I can tell, is the only candidate that's actually goes to the University of California at Berkeley, gets a standing ovation, and gets gives the same speech to the RNC. So his, his outreach going to traditionally African American universities and going to places where people normally don't go, and an example here in Texas would be he was down here at South by Southwest. He was the only candidate to do so. You know, I've talked to you a couple of years ago uh, heading into this past election, and you talked about your own kind of goals for the Texas Republican Party, what percentages of Hispanics, what percentages of other minorities you wanted to have Mm -hmm. in those elections. Uh, Did you leave the job uh, successfully? Uh, I think so, uh, probably even more successful than we we could have even dreamed. If you go back two years ago and and you look nationally, for example, among Asian-American voters, uh, the National Party only got 27% of the vote. Uh, however, here in Texas this last time, uh, exit polls showed we won the Asian American vote 52-48. If you look at the CNN exit polls, which are a different set of polls, you'll see that John Cornyn won the Hispanic vote. We think George P. Bush won it because he had the same voting patterns, even though he wasn't exit polled. Uh, Dan Patrick got 46%. Uh, Greg Abbott got 44%. We won Hispanic males. And among young people, it was particularly interesting. Uh, John Cornyn won the 18 to 29-year-olds. Greg Abbott split it. I look at the state convention. We had over 600 new delegates of Hispanic descent. We had started two uh, statewide um, Hispanic auxiliaries. We started an Asian-American auxiliary. We started a new African-American auxiliary. We elected the first African-American Republican uh, ever in this to Congress and the history of the state. But when it comes to the Republican Party today, uh, nationally, um, a lot of young people don't identify with it because of, of uh, gay mar- the gay marriage issue. I think you see that with Rand Paul as well. He came out against gay marriage. Um, I think some of the harsh rhetoric on uh, immigration has turned off a lot of Hispanics. How does Rand Paul overcome that, and what can he do that's different than other candidates? We have a generational divide in our party. Uh, I spent a lot of time traveling the state, and when you speak to young Republican clubs and college Republican clubs, uh, they have a much different issue, uh, different attitude uh, on social issues, for example, than those over 50. So some of these issues will be affected by just the the changing demographics of who's young now that will be old later. Younger people are more accepting of the fact that there may be people that disagree with them, that they still can uh, respect and be friends with and uh, love as friends and yet have an issue or two that they disagree with. So uh, the younger Republicans are more like Reagan then? (laughs) They're more of that 80% role. I, I think today's under 40 Republicans have a different focus on issues, and I do think that they're more of – they would agree with Reagan's statement that if you uh, agree with him 80 percent of the time, you're his friend. But before we dismiss that all older Republicans <laughs> uh, are my way or the highway, 
remember when I ran for state party chairman, I actually ran on the platform that we don't have to agree with each other on everything and that we that you don't have to have 100 percent agreement uh, or you're excluded from the party. And, you know, I beat the incumbent in a runoff 59-41 on the platform that we have room for people with different views within the party. In today's Republican Party, can you can you reach out to a broad spectrum of uh, of Republicans without being labeled as someone in the squishy middle? If you try to reach out to all Republicans, there always will be people that uh, criticize you as, as being a rhino or being too moderate. Um, but I, I would just put forth this. Even if you put all the Republicans together and you had 100% of them, we're way short of 50%. <laughs> the, at the last poll I show, I think it was 32% of Americans consider themselves Republicans. During the last six presidential elections, going back to 1988, which is now 27 years ago almost, the Republican Party has only achieved a majority of the popular vote one time since 1988, and that was in 2004 where we barely got 50%. We got 50.7% with an incumbent president. If that's not a huge billboard saying we don't have enough Republicans to win, we need other people other than Republicans, it leads you to the conclusion that the worst thing you can do is then to divide your Republican base because it by itself is not even close enough to winning. Is Texas going to have any role? I mean, we certainly saw that we did in the Democratic primary in 2008. Can there, will there be a role this time for Texas and the Republican side? There will be a huge role, but I think it will be a little di- different than people think it will be. If somebody got blown out in the first four states, I don't think Texas can revive them. But say we have we go from 17 candidates we have now roughly to to five after the first four states, Texas will have a huge impact on which of those five survive. And whoever wins, give them a big lead heading into the to the next month and a half of states. If they get a majority of the Texas yeah. delegates, Texas's delegation is larger than all the carve-out states combined. Obviously, this is a long slog. We've still got several months before we even have the first uh, vote in Iowa. Uh, but wh- where would uh, where would you hope the campaign is? You know, just a month from now. Well, it'll be up and running quickly. Then uh, the campaign will be going much more quickly than people think. When you consider that the first nationally televised debate sponsored by the RNC is in August, which you know we're almost to May now, so you have to start preparing for the debates in a month or two. So where I hope we are is just kind of an extension of where we actually are now, that we have good infrastructure in the early states. And right now we actually already have good infrastructure in New Hampshire and Iowa, really good infrastructure. So we hope, uh, you know, get similar infrastructure in Nevada and South Carolina. I was in Nevada last week working on that. But they turned out a 1,000 people to see them in Nevada, and Nevada's a caucus state. So I think we'll be in good shape there. We obviously have to raise the money, but uh, so far that's – doing great. We raised more money on the internet than Ted Cruz did in the first day. Uh, last time I checked, uh, we're, I think, 10 days since the announcement, and we were at 2.2 million just on the internet. 
Uh, so we have to raise the money. We need to fill out the staff. We have to put the infrastructure in the states. And then you also need to make sure you don't have any missteps and then really be ready for the first debate in August, remembering that there are nine debates scheduled between August and March 1st. I think uh, the last time around, there were nine debates in August. <laughs> well, the RNC, and I was a member of the Rules Committee that worked on this, uh, and then the RNC and its whole voted on it. We have reduced the number of debates from 23 to 9, but more importantly, the RNC has gotten control of the debate process. Last time, the RNC tried to sponsor debates, but it didn't work because everybody was just accepting debates from media outlets that were just setting them up. I think Rick Perry is sighing some relief on that one. Um, is there going to be a Texas debate? On the original schedule, there wasn't, but there is a possibility that because of one of the locations where a debate was set moving its primary, uh, I understand there's a chance that one of the um, debates that's tentatively now scheduled in for another state possibly could be moved to Texas. But something else I need to mention in terms of the role of Texas, and this is all subject to RNC uh, blessing of our rules, but the state convention uh, or the state rules have changed so that now 75% of our delegates, or 118, are based on primary votes on March 1st, but then there's another 38 delegates that are based on the vote of the delegates at the state convention on May 13th. So that puts Texas with a huge number of delegates available by the primary in the beginning of the process. But if by chance we're going to have a brokered convention or the race is still going in May, Texas gets a second bite at the apple so that candidates may be coming to Texas twice. Nice. The Republican two-step now. I call it the double-barrel shotgun. (laughs) Of course you do. Well, thanks so much for uh, talking with us. Obviously, you've been very busy launching a campaign, so uh, thanks for stopping by and giving us a few minutes. You're welcome. Always a pleasure. That was Steve Munisteri, former Texas Republican Party chairman and current employee of the Rand Paul for President campaign. What a knowledgeable guy. I'm, I'm sure we'll be having him back on. But, you know, there was that was kind of sort of a long interview that we had with him. It seems like there was something else that he said. He talked about when he talked about Ted Cruz and Rick Perry and if they're still viable when Texas rolls around. Can we play that clip? Yeah, I think you asked him, uh, how does Rand Paul win Texas? Uh, and here's what he said. I will be honest again and just tell you that if Ted Cruz and Rick Perry are still very viable candidates coming to the Texas primary, it would be very hard for for anybody to beat them because defeating favorite sons when favorite sons are viable, um, you know, I, I have very realistic expectations. You know, right now I'd say Ted Cruz is the front runner in the state. He is, he's a rock star among the base. If 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 he's in the top two or three candidates coming into Texas, you know he's going to be a very very strong favorite. So a lot of Rand Paul and and the other candidates' abilities to compete in Texas is not dependent on how they perform. It, it's dependent on how Rick Perry and Ted Cruz perform. Texas again, hoping that it can maybe be a kingmaker uh, with or without those favorite sons. That was kind of newsy. I thought what he just said about. Ted Cruz being the best candidate in Texas. Well, I think he's already know, conceded Texas. I think it was this statement where he said, you know, the the office is probably going to get mad at me for saying this, but um, but yeah, that that was a, a very truthful moment, and I think it's you can spin it if you're one of these uh, politicos, you can either spin it and say, well, of course my candidate can defeat all comers, but but yeah, I mean, considering the support that Ted Cruz currently has in the state and that 
the support that we believe Governor Perry, former Governor Perry, uh, you know, has in the state. Yeah, if either one of those two are in it, um, it will be hard to overcome just history than the years being in the state. Okay, well now it's straight ticket time. Our topic for today, help us figure out what the hell we're doing. If you're listening to this podcast, I would guess you enjoy politics. You may be a regular podcast listener, and I'm pretty sure you have an opinion. So when you hear us say, hey, give us a call or send us an email, uh, we actually mean it. Uh, Now, will voicemails that let us know that we're a conservative or liberal piece of crap help us craft future episodes? No. But you can tell us what segments or guests you liked and which ones you didn't. Uh, So let's start off with this segment. Straight Ticket. Do you like that name? If not, let us know. Offer a suggestion. Ben and I have been covering Texas politics for a pretty long time, but we don't know everything. By the way, nobody does, except for Evan Smith. <laughs> That's right. So give us <laughs> tips on who we should be interviewing. You can call us at 512-943-2016 or email us, theticket2016 at gmail. The Ticket is a production of KUT News and the Texas Tribune. The show was mixed by me and edited by Matt Largy. Our theme music is by Ben Root. Thanks for listening. <laughs>